Well, thank you so much, uh, Bob. I uh, hope that uh, you guys were singing loud in your homes and wherever you were, uh, worshiping God and um, extolling Him for His majesty and His grace and His glory. God hears us in our homes as we're scattered just as well as He hears us here. Uh, but I have a sneaking suspicion He wants us back here as soon as possible singing together. And I know you look forward to that as well. Well, church, if you have your Bibles with you, um, if you'll turn in them to Genesis chapter 27. Last week, Pastor Matt preached from Genesis chapter 26, and this morning we're going to spend our time uh, going through, Lord willing, the entirety of chapter 27. It's a long chapter, um, but it's not one that we can really break up. It's a narrative that really fits together as one unit. And so follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read Genesis chapter 27. Church, this is the breath of God, God's very word. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I, I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I might eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Isaac said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put delicious food, put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, 
to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently, and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, And away from the dew of heaven on high, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. 
So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets about what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there, Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you in song and to be instructed by your word. We thank you for this book which we hold in our hands. We thank you that you have preserved it throughout the ages so that we can know and be confident that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. And because it is your breath, because it is your word inspired by you, we ask, Father, that you would speak to us from it. Father, we don't want to walk away from this chapter simply with a better understanding about this chapter in this family's life. But, Father, we desire to be informed by this. And so, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to interpret it rightly and, Father, to apply it to our lives so that you will change us and transform us and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those who are listening who don't know you through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they're investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe they are searching for hope during this time. God, we pray that as we expound upon your word, God, that you would, will do what only you can do with your word, and that is to bring conviction of sin and a recognition of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ through the gospel. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said, this is a long chapter, but it is really one concise story, one narrative that simply can't be divided up uh, well into smaller bite-sized pieces. And so we're going to have a feast on this one story this morning. It can be divided into five Sections, And so I want to use these five sections as kind of a road map for where we go with this text this morning. First of all, in the first four verses, we see Isaac and his son Esau coming up with a plan with respect to the blessing. And then in the second section, verses 5 through 17, we see his wife Rebekah and the other twin, Jacob, come up with an alternating plan with respect to the blessing. After that, in verses 18 through 29, we see the execution of this plan, specifically the execution of Rebekah's plan of deception. And then after the plan is executed, we see the consequences of that plan being executed. First of all, the consequences for Isaac and Esau in verses 30 through 41. And then in verses 42 through the end of the chapter, we see the consequences for Rebekah and Jacob. So there's two plans. 
There's the execution of the plan, and then there are the consequences for each member of this family as a result of the plan. So let's look first at Isaac and Esau's plan with respect to the blessing in verses 1 through 4. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 27 that now Isaac is old. We're told he was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, which is just a euphemism for saying he was really old. How old is he at this point? Well, in chapter 25, we learn that he was 60 years old when the twins were born. And at the end of chapter 26, we're told that Esau is now 40 years old. And so if you add those two together, we learn that Isaac is at least 100 years old at this point. And so he's quite old. And he can't see. And so he asks his favorite son Esau, who is his favorite, by the way, by way of remembrance. He's his favorite because of the good food that he's able to prepare. He goes out and he hunts and he, and he catches wild game. And Isaac really has a fondness for the cooking of his son Esau. And so we, we get a, a little bit of a taste of, uh, no pun intended, we get a taste of some of Isaac's downfall as his natural inclinations, his base desires are what is ruling his life. And, and so um, Esau is his favorite because he likes his food. And so he asked Esau to prepare him a meal, his favorite meal. And, and Isaac compels Esau to do this by the use of a couple of inducements. First of all, he, he says, For I do not know the day of my death, which is true. He doesn't know the day of his death. None of us do. But it's almost as if he's giving a deathbed request. Oh, son, I'm about to die, and so go make my favorite food. When in reality, we'll learn later that Isaac lives to be 180 years old. He lives longer than any of the other patriarchs of Israel. And so he's a long way from his deathbed. So this is not a deathbed request. The dude just wants some really good barbecue right now. And so he compels him to do this. The second inducement, though, that Isaac uses to get Esau to go out and hunt wild game and prepare a meal for him is that he tells Esau that if he does this and he brings this food to him, he will bless him. But this blessing doesn't belong to him. We learned in chapter 25 that it now belongs to Jacob. You'll recall from chapter 25, we remember the story at the end of that chapter, we saw where Jacob negotiated for Esau's birthright. They were both twins, but Esau came out first. Jacob came out later, later clutching Esau's heel. And so Esau legally was the firstborn. He had the birthright by law. But in a moment of weakness, he flippantly said, I'm so hungry I could die, and so what good is my birthright? And Jacob says, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you some food. I'll give you some of my lentil stew. And so in, this, uh, in his weakness, um, in his smugness about his birthright, he sells it to his brother for a cup of soup. 
Now, that was about the birthright. Commentators are a bit divided on what the real difference is between the the Israeli birthright and the Israeli blessing from the father. Uh, Typically, according to Jewish custom, the birthright belonged to the firstborn son alone, and that he will get a double inheritance because of him being the firstborn. That was a result of the birthright. Whereas the blessing from the father typically went to all of the sons. Typically, a father would would bless all of his sons before he left uh, earth and before he died. But usually, the firstborn would receive a greater blessing. So in that sense, there's very little difference between the birthright and the blessing. But it's clear from the context here that Isaac secretly desires to bless only Esau. Secretly, he thinks it's a secret, but actually his wife is waiting in the wings, listening on the other side of the door. But he secretly here, we we can tell, he's not desiring to bless all his sons. He wants to bless Esau. And specifically because of his base desires and natural desires and instinct for good barbecue, basically. And if that's what Isaac intends to do, which is to give the blessing only to Esau, well, then this blessing is something that belongs to the firstborn son by birthright. And Esau has sold that birthright to his twin brother Jacob for a cup of of stew. And so it's not his in the first place. And so that, that's, that's their plan. Their plan is to sneak around and, and to give Esau the blessing anyway that now belongs to Jacob because Esau sold it back in chapter 25. So that's the plan for, for Isaac and Esau. But I wanna, what I want us to do is to take a, a little bit of a closer look at the patriarch here. In this story, look at Isaac a bit closer, the child of promise, promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age after years of Sarah's barrenness. The child of promise is born. It is, a, it is Isaac. And now he's an old man. Now he is advanced in years. And what a stark contrast we see between him and his father Abraham at this age. At this age, Abraham had learned to trust God no matter what. God had led him through a number of faith trials and faith journeys, and his faith and his trust in God had become strong and mature and solid, but not Isaac's. At this age, Abraham was sending his most loyal servant back to his homeland to his father's household, to to get a a wife for his son Isaac from there because he was going to be obedient to God and not get a Canaanite wife for his son. But not Isaac. At this age, Isaac now passively stands by, passively absent, when his son at the end of chapter 26, his son Esau, takes not one but two of those Canaanite wives to be his wife. At this age, Abraham believed God's promises, and it, and it was counted to him as righteousness, we're told, but not with Isaac. Isaac, here, 
at this age is denying the prophecy given to his wife back in chapter 25 when the Lord said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Esau shall serve Jacob. And now we see Isaac rejecting that prophecy from God and seeking to bless his son Esau instead. So as Abraham got older, his faith got stronger. As Isaac got older, sadly, tragically, his faith in God began to wane. How tragic is that? This elderly saint, that the closer he gets to the grave, the more his faith in God begins to wane and fade. He stopped believing God. He stopped following things. It seems as though his faith is beginning to wane. He's cutting corners now. He's not believing in God's word and God's promises. In fact, he begins to take after his son Esau and allowing his base desires, his fleshly desires and natural instincts Namely, his desire for good food to rule the day instead of being ruled by believing God's promises and trusting in God's word. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with really good barbecue at all. But Isaac's doing something more here. He's allowing his fleshly desires to lure him away from trusting in God and his promises Lure him away from doing what is right, just like Esau did back in chapter 25. So then what happens? Well, his wife overhears. Rebecca overhears. She is eavesdropping, which, by the way, the the word eavesdropping comes from um, a, a literal understanding of standing under the eaves where the water would drop off the eaves of the house. Where is that? Well, that's right next to the wall. So the picture is of this old lady, she's advanced in years as well, probably 80 or 90 years old at this point, and she's got her ear up against the wall, eavesdropping on a conversation between her husband and her son Esau. And so we go into the second section, verses 5 through 17, where we see Rebecca and Jacob's plan. And it's really mom's plan here. It's not so much Jacob. Jacob is kind of a stooge. He just kind of passively goes along with it. His mom is the one who's manipulating the the situation here. And her plan is for Jacob to go get two young goats from the flock. And she's going to prepare a meal just like her husband Isaac likes. And then she's going to get Jacob to dress up like Harry Esau... And through that means, deceive her husband into thinking that he is Esau, such that Jacob will steal his brother's blessing. So that's the plan. And we see here favoritism on the part of the parents. The favoritism that began back in chapter chapter 25, when we were told that Esau loved, excuse me, that Isaac loved Esau because he loved to eat his food, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now this favoritism is seen in full force, not only in the, in the actions of Isaac and Rebekah here in this chapter, but also in the way that Moses referred to them and described them. Look at verse 5. He says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son, not her son, his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to 
her son, Jacob. Well, Jacob and Esau are both the sons of of both Isaac and Rebekah. But the way Moses describes this here, he's, he's highlighting that Esau was Isaac's favorite and Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. And parents, this should just point out to us very, very clearly that favoritism in the family is just a cancer on the relationships within the family. But notice the lengths to which Rebekah and Jacob go to get this blessing. Not only does she prepare a meal just like Esau would, so that it tastes like Esau's cooking, and not only does Jacob wear Esau's smelly clothing so that he would smell like Esau, his brother, but also his mom extraordinarily takes the skin of these two goats that she had just skinned for the meal and she sews them into gloves to put on his hands and somehow attaches it to to Jacob's neck so that his hands and his neck would feel like that of his brother Harry Esau. Incredible. A couple of things I get from that. One, this Esau dude was really hairy. I mean, just like hair all over his body, even on his hands and his neck. It felt like goat hair all over him. But also, we see that Jacob really wanted this blessing. And he was willing to do pretty much whatever, to go to these great lengths in order to get his father's blessing. So here we see the dysfunction of this family on full display here. The parents were playing favorites with their kids, uh, which, you know, as if um, the sibling rivalry that existed between twin brothers was not enough. Now add on top of that, the parents are playing favorites with them. Isaac is waning in his trust of God. He's beginning to stop believe God and stop obeying God. He's no longer trusting God and and he's being a passive husband and a passive father. Rebecca is eavesdropping on her husband and her son Esau and then she goes and rats on them to her other son Jacob. And then she devises this plan to, to deceive her husband into thinking that Jacob is really Esau. So she's lying And not only that, but then she pulls her son Jacob into her ruse and coaches him how to deceive his father. And then, then of course, you've got Jacob here. He could have stopped this, but he doesn't. He could have said, "Uh, no, that's lying. We're not going to trick our father like this. We're not going to deceive our father, my father. But he doesn't. He just passively goes along with it. The point I want us to see at this point is that this is one messed up family. In this one chapter, we see lies, deception, manipulation, conniving, passivity, disobedience, something akin to gluttony, at least on the part of Isaac, bitterness, hatred, A plot to murder and the breaking up of a family. This is a messed up family here. I wonder how your family compares to this. Do you see some elements here 
in this family that would mirror some elements in your own family? And then what about yourself? Do you see some elements here in these characters that might mirror some things in your own life? So now we have these two different plans, and all that is left to do now is to execute these plans. And so we begin first in verses 18 through 29 with Jacob executing the plan of deception formed by his mother, Rebekah. So the plan is in place. All he has to do is execute it now. And so he brings in the meal, the the goat meat meal that mom had made for him. And and Isaac is, is too old to see. He can't see who it is. And so he asks, who is it? And And Jacob lies and says, I'm your firstborn son, Esau. And Isaac says, well, it sounds like Jacob, actually. So why don't you come here and let me me feel you. And so he comes closer and he feels his hands. He feels his neck. And he concludes that it is his son, Esau, even though it sounds like Jacob. So he says, well, bring me the meal. And he tastes the meal and it tastes like Esau's cooking and so he blesses Jacob in verses 27 through 29 so now it's done the deed is done Jacob has now successfully stolen the blessing from his brother Esau but now come the consequences and so we, we see first the consequences on Isaac and Esau in verses 30 through 41. So now Esau comes back from the hunt. He's got his wild game. He prepares it. He makes a meal for his father. He brings it to his father. And then when Isaac learns that this is actually Esau, not the other one, that, that actually was Jacob. And he had blessed Jacob. We're told then... In verse 33, when he comes to that realization, we're told that Isaac trembled very violently. And by the way, that's a pretty normal reaction when you realize that your disobedience to God and your sin and your rebellion to God has been found out. Your sin has been revealed, it's been laid bare. And the consequences are staring you in the face. That's where Isaac is at this point. He trembles very violently. This is the closest thing that I can find in Scripture to someone having a, a panic attack or something of the like. He trembles very violently. What have I done? And then he tells Esau that he's already blessed his brother Jacob. And then in verse 34, as soon as... Esau heard the words of his father that he had already blessed Jacob. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And we hear the anguish in his voice, an exceedingly great and bitter cry. This is deep anguish, deep sorrow and regret. Now perhaps he realizes that maybe he shouldn't have been so flippant with his birthright back in chapter 25 and selling it for a bowl of soup. And then we see his anguish turn to hatred. Look at verse 35 and following. There Isaac says, your your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. How does Esau reply in verse 36? 
Is he not rightly named Jacob? And remember from a couple of weeks ago, we said that Jacob's name means literally heel grabber. That's how he came out of the womb, grabbing his brother's heel, trying to take that which didn't belong to him. Cheater, it means cheater, it means supplanter. Is he not rightly named that? For he has cheated me these two times. He says, he took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Think about that for just a second. He's taken away my birthright, Esau says. Has he? Has he really? Did Jacob take away Esau's birthright? Not really. Esau sold it. In a moment of flippancy, in a moment of being smug about his birthright, he sold it away because of his base and fleshly desires for some lentil soup. But this also is a typical response of someone who's given themselves fully to rage and hatred. They deflect all blame from themselves. They don't see any fault in themselves and they they focus all of their blame on the other person. And that's what he does. Jacob has taken away my birthright and behold now he has taken away my blessing. Then Esau said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? To which his father responds in verses 37 and 38. Behold, I have made him Lord over you And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? You hear the desperation in Isaac's voice. In verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Deep anguish, deep sorrow. And then Isaac gives his son Esau not a blessing but a curse in verses 39 and 40. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Which, by the way, that last part was fulfilled in 2 Kings 8 under the rule of Jehoram, king of Judah. But upon hearing this curse, that he will will live far from the fat of the land, which basically means your life is going to be hard, Esau. Your life is going to be difficult and you will ultimately not be prosperous and you will not find success. You will live far from the fat of the earth. You will not see prosperity, but worse than that, worse than that, you will serve your younger brother. Not just as a person, but as a nation. The nation that came from Esau are the Edomites and the Edomites would serve Israel, would serve the namesake of Jacob, Israel. So upon hearing this curse, Esau's anguish over this predicament gives rise to full-blown hatred. Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. Proverbs 29, 11 reminds us that the fool gives full vent to his rage. And here, Esau is presented to us as a fool as he makes plans now to kill his twin brother, Jacob. 
Now in the final section, we see not just the consequences to Isaac and uh, to um, uh, Esau, but we see the consequences for Rebekah and Jacob. And, and what are those consequences for them? Well, it's fear. It's, 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 it's fear of the threat of murder. It, it is the consequence of a divided family now dispersed throughout the Fertile Crescent. It is the consequence of, of Jacob now having to flee from his family and live a life as a fugitive on the run. Dire consequences here for them. Verse 42, uh, in verse 42 it says that, that Esau's threat of murder, murdering Jacob, was told to Rebekah. So here she's not eavesdropping. Instead, she's participating in gossip. So she overhears this. She, she's told this. And so then she goes and, and tells her son Jacob. And tells Jacob to go flee to her brother Abim, Laban. And that's where we're going to leave off the story because that leads into the, the, the story and the things that happen in chapter 28. As Jacob is on the run now, fleeing from his brother's wrath. But we should note here in this final section of Genesis chapter 27 that although Jacob got the blessing, he also endured some dire consequences for his actions, for his deception and lies. Rebecca also, she also suffers consequences here. She sowed the seeds of favoritism and deception in her family and she reaped a family divided her son Esau probably never forgave her as he went off and began a, a, a nation of his own who would then fight against the family, as we'll see in this book. And then Jacob, Jacob is, he flees from the, the family home. She doesn't see her son Jacob, Jacob anymore. There's no record in scripture that they're ever reunited until Jacob dies. And he's reunited with his mother and his father as he's buried in the cave of Machpelah. This is a sad story of a very messed up and dysfunctional family. But it's not just a story in the chapter, uh, a story in a chapter of the life of these characters here in this family. The story is in the Bible which means that it has more value than just a, a, a slice of their life for human interest. You know, God could have given us a Bible without stories. He could have given us a Bible that just contained doctrinal letters and commandments on what we're to do and what we're to not do, but he didn't. He gave us a Bible with stories, with narratives. And narrative portions of Scripture like this are here for a reason, they're here for us to, to dive into the experience of the characters in the story such that we might be instructed in some way. In order for us to understand the way in which we're, we're to be instructed by a, a narrative portion of Scripture like this, we need to consider things like the author of the story, the context of the story, the setting of the story, and, and the audience to whom it was originally intended. And so let us return now to the Sinai Wilderness as the children of Israel are wandering those 40 years. Behind them is Egypt and slavery 
and bondage. In front of them are fortified cities and battle-hardened soldiers guarding the way to the promised land. And God was using Moses to lead them. And part of how Moses was leading them was in writing this book, the book of Genesis during that time. Writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this story for the Israelites in that setting would have been more than just a, a human interest story from some of their relatives, from some of their heritage. It would have been instructive to them. And it would have taught them a number of things. Three things in particular, I believe, it would have taught the Israelites and subsequently teach us. Those three things are, it would teach us something about sin, it would teach us something about grace, and it would teach us something about sovereignty. What, what would we learn about, what would the Israelites have learned about sin by diving into the lives of the characters in this story? Well, we've already noted that this was a messed up family, and we've seen it in all four members of the family. Isaac was losing faith in God as an old man. How tragic and how sad. He stopped believing God's word. He's, he's letting his fleshly desires and his base um, natural inclinations rule the day instead of leaning on God's word and God's promises. But perhaps above all of that, Isaac typifies for us in this passage the passive father and husband. He's not leading his family spiritually here. He's not leading them in the faith. Instead, instead he is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the couch potato dad, not engaging in the spiritual development of his family or the well-being, the, the, the moral well-being of his family. Instead, he is just passively absent. Rebecca is sneaking around, listening to other people's conversations, and then crafting a way to deceive her husband and her son. And roping her youngest son into her ruse, she's manipulative, she's conniving, she's deceptive, and she's a gossip. We saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 26, that she was beautiful. She was beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, she was ugly and rotten. What about Jacob, the child of promise? What about him? At least in this passage, he's following in the footsteps of, of his father as he, as he passively agrees to, to play the stooge in the play of her mother's deceptive plan. He lies, he cheats, and he steals his brother's blessing. Unless we think that Esau is some kind of innocent victim here, listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes him. Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau was unholy 
And he was sexually immoral, not to mention being smug and dismissive about his birthright, trading trading it away for a bowl of soup. So as we look at the members of this family, what do we see? Well, we see sinners. And whenever scripture shows us sinners, puts sinners on display, we should pick up a mirror and look at ourselves. For that is what we are as well. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and even Jacob clearly have fallen short of the glory of God. And so have we. So have you and I. And their sin in this passage and the resulting consequences for their sin are a huge warning sign erected by God in this passage. A warning sign to you and I to not travel down that road. To not follow after that pattern. Consider the anguish and the devastation wrought on this family because of their sin. Friend, don't go down that path. Whether you know Jesus as Savior or whether you have not yet come to faith in him, don't go down that path. And if you're on that path, stop. Stop going down that path. It is only a pathway that leads to destruction and death. And devastation. So we learn about sin in this chapter. Theirs and ours. And when we learn about our sin, our response should be one of repentance. Turning from sin. And turning to Jesus Christ. Who died on the cross. To pay the price for sinners like you and I. So we learn about sin. Secondly, we also learn about grace here. We learn, thankfully, that that having it all together is not a prerequisite for being used in God's kingdom. And that's really good news for us this morning. We learn that God uses messed up people. He uses sinners to accomplish his plan. Sinners like Isaac and Rebekah. Sinners like Esau and Jacob. And sinners like us. Consider Jacob, whose name means cheater, supplanter, heel grabber. In five short chapters, he will be renamed to Israel. The namesake for a people, the namesake for a nation. He will father 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet here, in chapter 27, he is lying, he is cheating, he is stealing from his brother, and he's sinning against Yahweh. This con artist becomes a man whom we will later be told sees the face of God and lives. And that couldn't have been because of his personal holiness and his personal righteousness. Because what is on display for us so vividly in this passage is his depravity and his sin. No, it was simply by God's grace Moses so vividly and graphically displays the sin of these characters in this chapter. And because he does so, the grace of God is seen as that much brighter. And that's always the case, church. The grace of God is always seen more vividly and more brightly against the backdrop of our depravity and sin. That's what Thomas Watson meant when he said, till sin be bitter, 
Christ will not be sweet. And it is good, church, it is good to be made aware of our sin. It's called conviction. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to show us our sin, to show us where we've fallen short of the glory of God. And when we do, when we are made aware of that, of our sin, then our response should be to confess that, to agree with God that, yes, it is sin. Yes, it is a violation of what you demand of me. And to repent of that sin, to turn away from that and turn to Christ and his rule over us, to turn to Christ in faith and, and in so doing to resolve to never go down that path towards death and destruction, but to recognize that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like us. And then finally, I believe that this passage teaches us about God's sovereignty. God didn't cause these people to sin in this story. James makes it clear that God does not tempt anyone to sin, does not cause anyone to sin. Not Isaac's, not Rebekah's, not Esau's, and not even not Jacob's. Each of them is responsible themselves before God as a moral agent for their own actions and sins. But though he does not cause them to sin, he does use their sin as part of his perfect will. God uses their sin as a part of his sovereign plan. You see, God was doing something more here than just interacting in the affairs of this one family in Palestine. He's accomplishing his sovereign will. He's keeping his promises to Abraham. He's fulfilling the prophecy made to the serpent in the garden when he cursed the serpent and he said I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring Satan and her offspring you will bruise his heel but he will crush your head he was speaking of one who would come from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent defeating sin and death forever it was a pre-gospel good news that God would send a rescuer and God would send a redeemer to reverse the curse of sin and death. That promise, church, that promise would be embedded now in the covenant with Abraham. That God would give him a son and that through his seed he would bring a nation to bear. And that through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This, of course, points us to Jesus Christ. The one who came from the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, the seed of Joseph, and so on. Ultimately, that is what God is doing here in this passage. He's preserving a people. He's preserving a, nat a nation through whom he would bring his son into the world and then send him to a, to a cross to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and I. And not only does this teach us about grace, but it, but it also teaches us about, uh, us about God's sovereignty. Nothing, nothing, church, was going to get in the way of God's plan in this story. Not the sin of Isaac, not the sin of Rebekah or Esau, or even the sin of Jacob. Nothing would keep God from accomplishing his sovereign plan and will. 
to bring his son through this family and then send him to the cross to be put to death and rise again, defeating sin and death for all those who would trust in him forever. And so there the Israelites are, wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. They would hear this story, and they'd be warned not to walk down the path that these characters walk down, to stay away from that path. Don't walk down the path of ignoring God and his word, of following the natural inclinations and fleshly-based desires of one's own heart at the expense of following God's promises. We, too, would be well-served, church, to heed this warning given to them. But they would also see God's grace on display in Jacob because he certainly did not obtain his father's blessing on merit. It was all because of God's grace. And at least the remnant of Israel that was, were, were there in the wilderness, the remnant of Israel, the true spiritual Israel within the physical national ethnic Israel, the Israel of faith within the larger physical Israel, these would have recognized that they were an imperfect nation filled with flaws and imperfections and sins. And yet God had graciously chosen them to be his nation, his people, through whom he would one day bring his son. And we too, church, we should glory. We should glory in the grace of God in bringing us to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. See your sin as bitter, church. See your sin as bitter so that Christ will be sweet. Behold your sin and then behold the Savior, the Lord Jesus, upon the cross. What amazing grace. And then finally, these Israelites would have recognized that God was at work in this story. In the entire story, I don't know if you recognize it or not, but Yahweh was only referred to passively by some of the characters. Moses doesn't have Yahweh doing anything or saying anything in this entire chapter, and yet we see his thumbprint all over it. Even in their sin and manipulation and deception, God was at work accomplishing his sovereign plan. And don't you know that the Israelites would have found great comfort in that truth, and great confidence that God was still in control, even in the midst of their wilderness. And church, we know that God is still at work today, even in the midst of our wilderness. He's at work. He's at work in the sins of the world. He's at work when we sin, not causing us to sin, but he's working through that to bring about his sovereign plan. And church, he's, he's working, he's working and, and at work accomplishing his sovereign will, even in this coronavirus pandemic. He's accomplishing what he intended from the foundation of the world. Let us find confidence and let us find comfort and courage in that truth. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and King, we thank you so very much that we can walk away from this passage with a more sober reality and recognition of our own sinfulness and the many ways in which we mirror some of the sins that we see in these characters. 
But we're also reminded, Father, of your grace and your mercy that you have made a way for sinful human beings like us to be reconciled to you. So we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his substitutionary death. And Father, we pray for those who have never come to faith in this Christ. We pray that even now, Lord, that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus Christ to not trust in their, own, in their own efforts to make themselves a better person so that they might be acceptable to you. But Lord, we ask that you would give them a, a, a huge faith and confidence that Jesus Christ has taken the punishment for sinners like us and that we can make, be made justified before you through faith in him. Father, as believers in Jesus Christ, we marvel at the gospel And we marvel at this story that points to the cross, that points to the resurrection, and points us to the good news and the grace that you have extended to us in Christ. And in faith, we thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.